Are you sure you're ready for this? I spoke to your housemaster yesterday and suggested you might attend as a day pupil for a little while. Why? Well, just until things get a little easier. You could stay with me at Highgrove. I'm fine. Or with Granny at Windsor. Obviously, it's your choice. I just, uh, I just want you to move at your own speed. This is my speed. I just want things to go back to normal as quickly as possible. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Part two of season six of The Crown has now dropped on Netflix, and I'm here to guide you through the much anticipated new episodes, starting with episode five, titled Will's Mania. Still coming to terms with his mother's death, Prince William resumes school at Eton just three days after her funeral. He wants things to return to normal as quickly as possible, but rapidly discovers his life has changed in more ways than one. Alongside an outpouring of sympathy from the public is increasing attention from teenage girls, as William's status as a reluctant heartthrob grows. Uncomfortable with the attention and feeling pushed into official engagements, William turns his frustration on his father, blaming him for thrusting him into the spotlight and more besides. But Prince Philip, who also experienced loss at an early age, is able to see through William's anger and steps in to help his grandson. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't managed to watch episode five yet, I suggest you do that now or very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast. I'll catch up with Will's Mania co-writer, Jonathan Wilson, on exploring Prince William's teenage fame. There was so much mixed up in those reactions from the public. A huge weight of things to deal with. Dominic West tells me about playing Charles as a struggling father. The only response you can have to that is love, unconditional mm. love and understanding, even when they're being horrible and killing you. Director Maya Tuki gives her insight on the world of the young princes. Harry is actually trying to reach for William and longs for a togetherness in the grief that William can't offer. And Jonathan Price looks back at playing Prince Philip on the final season of The Crown. Nobody had a bad word to say about him. That he was interested and interesting, a very generous person. But first, here's Peter Morgan on shifting the focus to Prince William in this half of the season. Episode five, Will's Mania. Yeah. This is interesting because we take a shift to kind of William's world. The fact that well, he and also a different actor. Why the changing cast? Because in the second half of the season, I mean, we just knew we had to change actor because there are some actors, if you're asking them to play a bit older and suddenly they're dating, right? They're dating at a sexual age in a university. So you don't think to yourself, okay, who are we going to have to be the William that's walking behind Diana's coffin? 
is that the most emotional, most important moment? Is the person that we want to really get the best performance from, is our best actor, do we look for the best actor to play that stuff or the best actor to play the later stuff? Because then you've got somebody who's too old to walk behind the coffin and suddenly they don't look like a vulnerable little boy. They look like a, a man, a young man. So that would ruin that. Or you have an inappropriately young person talking about dating. Well, that's creepy. So you don't want that. So it was, you know, the decision was taken that we absolutely had to change the Williams, which meant we had to change the Harrys. We decided to do that around Ep5. And great casting on both sides of that, the younger to the older and, and with William and Harry. But that shift does focus over to Prince William, what he's trying to cope with about the fact that, you know, going back to school so quickly after his mother's death and all these letters that he gets that the letters kind of change from sympathy into kind of adoration and this whole kind of soft wheel starts shifting for him really in terms of his focus and the public's focus kind of on him. What was the decision in that focus be, to be on him? I don't know if you felt the same way, but I remember thinking when I saw William first getting those, you know, like, ah, you know, the Donny Osmond scenes. Yeah. I remember thinking, wow, because he went through a phase of looking so like Diana. And it was almost like it came to its peak. He, he went through peak Diana resemblance in the one or two years immediately after her death. And it felt like Diana was still alive through him. And so I felt that I was still writing, not Diana's dialogue, but he was a continuation of Diana in the show. And that therefore, if Diana and the Queen were the lead characters in the first four episodes until her death, then then I thought William and the Queen should be the lead characters going through the rest of the show. That it would essentially be continuing that skewer in the shish kebab. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Never thought you'd make that comparison, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I love that relationship that we see kind of throughout different seasons of her being the queen being a grandma. Yeah. And I love that... Easier to be a grandmother than a mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they say, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a grandparent, but I can understand it makes sense. And also that, that relationship, grandfather and grandson, similarly, because there's a really lovely kind of back to your, the kebab reference <laughs> of a kind of pull through from season two to season six with the conversation that Mountbatten has with Philip and then the conversation that Philip has with William. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very fond of episode five, making it all about fathers and sons. And, and by that, I opened it up a bit to make it also about Prince Philip and the feelings he might have had about his relationship with the Prince of Wales. But that, that's quite an intimate episode, you know, given that we've come under fire on this show for going places that people consider to be too private or too, you know. This is an episode when I've watched and I thought, gosh. But equally, if it's a story about a family and the impact on that family of being the first family in the country, you have to sometimes spend time talking about what it is to be a family, as opposed to just spending time talking about what it is to be a monarchy. And here we really get to nitty gritty about children with resentments, you know, and uh, the stuff that happens behind every front door in the country, you know, and it's part of growing up and it's part of 
defining yourself as an adult. And I really enjoyed writing this episode, yeah. Tears and self-pity aren't exactly common currency in this family. But it's not self-pity, is it? It's grief. And for his own sake, he needs to let it all out. Will you talk to him, Mummy? Sometimes it's easier when it's not the parent. You know how fond he is of you. But isn't this precisely where a parent is most needed? Now it's time to hear from Jonathan Wilson, who co-wrote Will's Mania with Peter. If you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you may remember that we first met Jonathan back in 2020. When we spoke back there for season four, you'd co-written Fagin, an extraordinary episode, absolutely brilliant. Tell people about the journey to take a big role for this final season because you've co-written three episodes? That's right, yes. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. It's very exciting. (laughs) I mean, in terms of the journey, it was very unexpected and welcome because I had started in season three and... Yeah, as you say, co-wrote an episode in four, Fagan, and had been in the development for five, but then I wasn't able to be there for production. So I got the call back for six and was delighted to accept and find myself working across three brilliant episodes with Peter. Let's talk about episode five, Will's Mania. How would you sum up this episode? Uh, So it's in the aftermath of Diana's death and it's really about William and his grief and how he's trying to process that or struggling to. That's all happening in the context of his sudden kind of explosion into the public realm. And after the funeral, the spotlight fell on him and there was kind of a transference of all the attention and interest in Diana kind of fell on him, which must have been enormously kind of disorientating and and confusing for him, given he was trying to process having lost his mother. So yeah, it's this phenomenon of of Will's mania that he gets kind of caught up in. It's also a a father's and son's episode. You know, it's about William processing his grief and the difficulties of his relationship with his father at that time, um, who's also grieving and them trying to find some kind of reconciliation Mm. in amongst all this kind of madness of Will's mania and this huge public attention that he was enjoying at that time, or not enjoying rather. It was madness, like the arrival of some pop star. Not surprised. He's such a handsome boy. I don't think my family knew quite what to make of it all. The whole thing has a distinct feeling of deja vu. He does look remarkably like his mother. Yes. And it's painful to watch because unlike Diana, Willie's a child thing. Not comfortable with that kind of attention. Ah, who would be? So he needs your support. I'm trying, but it doesn't make it easy. He's so monosyllabic these days. He's almost hostile. What was the kind of world of the research team and what they threw up from this whole area? What did you draw from, would you say? I mean, you know, it was interesting hearing just how much Charles was trying to be a good father and trying to to cope with that and, you know, something very human and heartbreaking about him trying to connect with William during that period and in the immediate wake of the funeral, he cancelled a lot of his appointments and his duties to really focus on William. 
So, you, you know, that I think kind of added to an understanding of what they were going through that time and, you know, this attempt to kind of cushion William from the impact of the death. He had the staff hide any papers referring to it when he when they came home and you know which isn't necessarily the right approach to kind of shelter someone too much from their grief but it's a very human reaction to try and protect your son and there's a lot of kind of heartbreaking and moving stuff in the episode around that and and Charles you know trying to do the right thing by William and yeah struggling in that role and, and receiving support in it from Camilla and Anne who kind of have to counsel him through how to be a good father and you know how, how to deal with this enormous thing that's hit them all. Does he have friends at school? Of course. What a question. Why? You didn't. True. It's better he's with his gang. They'll look after him. Sometimes as parents, we have to admit defeat. Mm. The idea, though, that kind of, you know, William went straight back to school, but then he was suddenly kind of just almost thrown into this attention as well and this, these letters that he would get sent and, mm. you know, showing support, showing empathy, sympathy for him and things like that. But just, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective in terms of like the almost celebrity status that he suddenly seemed to, to have received from strangers yes which was a weird thing for him to kind of come to terms with wasn't it very weird to have the world grieving for someone that you're still trying to understand how to grieve for when they didn't know her to him it must have seemed very strange to be caught up in that all that public outpouring of grief because on that one hand you've got that kind of outpouring but then on the other side of it you've got like the almost loneliness of it mm. and that world that he sort of wants to inhabit in a way. Well, he kind of retreats into Eton and I think it's a refuge for him. I think it's a very cloistered world, Eton, so it's he's kind of protected from the outside world. Mm. So there's the two, there's the letters from his fellow pupils at the school, letters of condolence, which was, a, was something that really happened. There was, I think, over 600, half the school wrote letters of condolence. But then there was also these letters from largely teenage female fans and that must have been a odd thing to have to deal with and kind of intruding on his solitude there at the school. And there was so much mixed up in those reactions from the public. There's sympathy for, for a young man who's lost his mother. There's kind of teenage infatuation and, and the rock star thing and he's suddenly this teenage heartthrob. There's also constant comparison of him with Diana, mm. people commenting on how much he looks like her and, as I say, this kind of transference of attention from her to him. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a huge weight of things to deal with. Dear William, now, does anyone know all of us on the water polo team are thinking of you and are looking forward to having you back when you feel ready. Anyone? Preferably sooner rather than later, as Kindersley is not a patch on you as keeper. <laughs> Dear William, I feel so sad for your loss. My mother has always loved the royal family, especially Princess Diana. She says she was an angel, and I know you're an angel too. I have enclosed my picture. My friends tell me I am very pretty. Dear William, you look so cute in a suit and tie. I'm sure you'll look really sexy. Writing a script is not just a case of writing words as well. You're writing the world, you're writing the environment, you're creating 
the visuals on the page, really, you know, and then obviously it's director's job to sort of take that further. But in terms of when you're writing to create William's World, what details were really important to you to help, you know, kind of form that within the script? Yeah, uh, well, certainly when he's in Eton, because I think so much of what he's drawing from that is the kind of routine and the the ritual of Eton, you know, there was a uh, having to get to know that world, which is is one I, I'm not familiar with. You know, in terms of his kind of contemporary uh, world that, that he's living in the period detail, which I think gives kind of colour and texture and authenticity. This was the first season that kind of caught up with my lived experience. Yeah. So, you know, I started season three when we are in the 60s and 70s and before my time, 80s and 90s, I kind of remember, but wasn't too aware of what was going on in world events. But I was born a year after William and uh, went to uni in the same year and oh, wow. in Scotland. Did you? Yeah. So there was a lot of like parallels or or at least it felt familiar to me, that context of, you know, the music of the time and, and the cultural references. All that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Claudia Schiffer, Naomi Campbell and um, Cindy Crawford, I think he has on his walls, which I... Do we know that? Is that I, from I, that? What well, I think that came from research. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sure someone mentioned, or you know, someone who knew him yeah. at the time had said that that was who he had on his walls. Oh, I hope you don't mind, Doctor Gailey. Let me in. Sorry. Oh, nothing to be ashamed of. Do they have names? Claudia Schiffer, Cindy Crawford, and Naomi Campbell. In my day, it was Rita Hayworth, Betty Grable, and Lana Turner. Mean anything to you? No, no, of course not. Philip's really important in the episode in terms of his kind of role in bringing William and Charles together again. And he, I think, is someone else who, in his childhood, experienced massive loss, which we saw in season two, episode nine, with the loss of his sister the plane crash. So I think that bonds William and, and his grandfather. I think they're kind of united in loss and and have an understanding of each other. But I think Philip's also reflecting on his own relationship with Charles and, mm. you know, when he sees how angry William is at his father and the difficulties between them, he's inevitably thinking about his own relationship with Charles. He's thinking about his own father who rejected him there's a line in the episode we're not very good at fathers and sons in this family from charles and there was always a line i loved in um, episode nine season two which Mountbatten says to philip about fathers falling short and i think the line is all fathers fall short and one day you'll be a father too and you'll fall, fall short and you'll pray that your son can forgive you and i think philip is seeing the difficulties in, in William and Charles's relationship and and wanting to make some kind of amends, which leads to this, him kind of nudging uh, William towards a reconciliation with his father, or at least an, a, a better understanding of where his grief's coming from mm. so that he can reconcile with his father. It's as if they think because I look like her, I'm like her. You're not remotely like her. I know that. So is it possible you're angry with her for having been all the things you're not? Comfortable in the spotlight? Confident in front of an adoring crowd, which you think you now have to be? And hate. 
And is it possible you're angry with her because, well, because of her leaving you? Leaving you to deal with that legacy? Except what son can ever be angry with his mother? Especially when he's grieving for her and missing her so terribly. So you take it out on someone else and blame him for the fact that she's gone. Later, we'll hear from our own Prince Philip, Jonathan Price. But first, Dominic West reflects on portraying Prince Charles on the final season of The Crown as he takes on parenting without Diana. How are you feeling about the final season of The Crown? Being unveiled. Well, a lot more relaxed than I was about. Are the, you? Yeah, it's funny. The I didn't really realize. I suppose I did realize it, but the sort of dread of revealing your inadequate offering at the end of a very successful show is quite profound. I suppose what it is you don't have to be compared anymore with yeah. with what went before. So it's so much more enjoyable. And Peter Morgan said, I remember when when I signed up to this, he said actually. For all the actors, the second season, they don't, no one really settles down till the second season. And it's sort of true. And in the second season, you're sort of, you think I've got it and I can, I can just have fun with it. And since we last spoke, the character that you're playing based on Prince Charles now become King Charles. Yeah. Did that inform any reflection on you in terms of him or? Yeah, yeah, it did. So much of last season and of his life is about will he be king? Mm. I remember thinking, oh, oh, he made it, you know, he is king and everyone's sort of cool with it because all his life he's had like that Dimbleby interview, all the interviews he's ever had, you know, do you think you'll ever be king? And when Diana said, he, you know, and he always looks sort of, of course I'm going to be bloody king. And, but, and now he is, and it's remarkably smoothly, really. Mm. So there was that, that sort of thinking, okay, they put that big question, the first question they always asked him, that's gone to bed now. And then the other aspect was seeing those, the pen incident, when the queen died and he became king. Mm. There was so much character stuff there. It was so funny she'd done 70 years without ever a flicker of emotion. He's day one, he's, oh, bloody hell, bloody <laughs> stinking pen. And it was wonderful, I loved it. There was so much to, yeah. to go on. And then of course, you know, three solid weeks of watching telly, which was heaven. <laughs> It's so interesting as well when you look at Philip and how he's been someone who has never really been able to deal with his own grief, but is pretty extraordinary when it comes to helping others mm. through their grief mm. as well. And, and watching him in those scenes with, with Ed and William mm. and that kind of grandfather, mm. granddad thing is, is, a, is a really wonderful thing. It is great, isn't it? Mm. And it rings true, doesn't it? You know, in some ways, the royal family are, you know, they're like the Waltons, or they are the sort of ideal family, or they're supposed to be. And that's why, you know, we're so delighted when they mess up. But in a way that, you know, you want your grandpa to be like that. You want, you know, that's the relationship that you can't have with your parents. You know, you, you have with an older generation. And, and it was great that Peter brought that out, I think. When I see that side of the real Prince Philip, and that's what's great about the crown, you get to see those sides that... Yeah seem very plausible and, and whether they are or not, they bring up all sorts of questions about mentors and the, uh, I was going to say the use of old people, but the, the, the you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the value of your grandparents yeah. and, and what they mean to you. Yeah, because it kind of relinquishes, you slightly relinquish responsibility or it's a different type of responsibility as, what, a, as the parent? a parent. Yeah. I find it very 
affecting. I have, I've got two boys about that age, so I, it was it was very affecting. And and just the rejection when William rejects his dad and is livid with his dad and blames his mother's death on his dad and you know won't give him anything. I think any parent can sort of relate to that or relate to the fact that the only response you can have to that is love, unconditional love and understanding. And even when they're being horrible and killing you, all you can do is love. And uh, so central to to being a parent and to such a central thing to love. It's, uh, it's mm. you know, you love someone, whatever they do. And we only ever really, I only ever do that with my kids. You wouldn't do it with anyone else, would you? Yeah. And Charles is now at that point as well, because now he's having to be single parent. Yeah. Well, and he, and so. he's not well equipped. Like none of us is, you know, we're all, you know, we're all inadequate parents. And that was, I thought, was very human and very affecting to play. That his his inadequacy as a as a man and as a as a parent and as a dad, you know, I felt it, and I think everybody has. This isn't about what you're getting from him. And it's not as if I was given the best example to follow. The Duke of Edinburgh was hardly the most communicative or affectionate father to me. Hardly surprising given the delinquency of his own father's parenting. I'm afraid we don't do fathers and sons very well in this family. And you know my attitude to that. It's no excuse. It really isn't. The boys need you now more than ever. And if I may... Go on. You need them too. Director Maya El-Tuki returned to The Crown to direct episodes five and seven of this season. And I was particularly interested to get her insight on crafting the world of the young princes, William and Harry. From episode five onwards, the brothers are played by two exciting new actors, Ed McVeigh and Luther Ford. So as the characters begin to take a more central role, I asked Mai about William and Harry's relationship following their mother's death. I would say that the way Peter's written them is that is William is nice and Harry is naughty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a childlike naughty. Yeah, childlike naughty, not with any devilish attitude towards it, but kind of a pure naughtiness. And I think in episode five, the way they handle their mother's death is quite different to each other. I would say that Harry and Five, the way I interpretate him in Peter's writing is that he somehow, because he's not shying away from grieving and realizing and accepting in some way, that their mother is gone. Mm. He's further ahead than William in terms of his grief process. So when William talks about wanting everything to go back to normal, I don't think Harry believes that there is such a thing, you know, mm. going back to normal. Yeah. That reality is forever altered. And he is in acceptance of that and realization of that. Whereas William is kind of trying to backtrack to something, which is obviously not possible. And in the same sense, when they visit Canada with their father and Harry dares to toast their mother, I find that also kind of an, an essential moment between the boys because I see that Harry is actually trying to reach for William and longs for a togetherness in the grief mm -hmm. that William can't offer. CTV's Colin Gray reports. 
Gin to your whiskey. Beer's fine. Help me welcome our players today. Matt Wendy. <laughs> Wendy Goodson, born in uh, Peru. Here is Matt Sutherland. Just got married. Yeah. To mommy. The beautiful way that both the episode's been written and the way that you've directed it is the way that you tell that story of William not being able or how he is trying to deal with the grief. And it's almost in those quiet moments and it's without dialogue. You can almost see the internalisation of trying to step towards it. You can see it in the performance. You can see it in the direction. It's almost like a ghost. It's there trying to draw him in and trying to get him to to face it. But he's always one step away from it. Yeah, I think I'm very happy that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I see it as a compliment. And so I think as a Scandinavian filmmaker, we are trained, and partly because our budgets are so small compared to here, we are trained in kind of dwelling on faces in places, basically. Mm. So the face is the primary kind of object often in, in Scandinavian films because we don't have as much funding to create, you know, a fantastic arena. And so mm. therefore we're very, very preoccupied with uh, close-ups and mid-shots and trying to mirror the world of the character in the face of the character, mm. basically. And so I think it's something that we spoke a lot about because obviously the grammar of these episodes is a little bit different also due to the kind of singularity of the narrative mm -hmm. that we're with him all the time and there's almost not more in seven than in five but still there's not a lot of scenes where he's not in them yeah and so drilling on him and his face and what he sees and I think also as an audience you're projecting especially as a grown-up audience maybe you're projecting your own experience onto him, your own experience with loss. And so he becomes almost kind of a mirror character mm. for the audience. It's so interesting when you think about it because, you know, obviously the show being based on real characters, real events. And so grief is such a huge theme throughout the show. And I love when those moments are allowed to kind of explode, you know, that grief allows conversations to happen because of that. And we get that in this episode with Charles and, and William, where you have that kind of explosive conversation. Talk a little bit about filming that scene between Dominic and Ed and the conversations that you had with them about how that would work for them. But then also for you as a director, there's, there's a lot visually that kind of supports the whole framework of this conversation in this moment? Yeah, so in terms of the visual choices, when you have a scene that long, I think it was, I don't know whether it was six or eight pages, but it was long. Wow. Yeah. And so it took a whole day to shoot. And it's all about finding a place where you can stand being in that space and in that place for that long. And also creating a mise-en-scene where the characters do not just sit and talk, but kind of create a choreography that mirrors whatever process the characters are going through during the conversation. And so that's why we chose the bow room, it's called, at the location that poses for Windsor. We also rehearsed, me and Dominic and Ed, that scene beforehand at Elstree, weeks before we were shooting it. 
But I would say something that Dominic and I talked a lot about is that, and it could be because we're old and we're parents both, and if you have teenage children, you you take a beating now and then. But both of us felt that actually Charles throughout the episode is doing the right thing. He's really trying to reach for William and he's trying to say the right thing and do the right thing. He might not be equipped to make all the right choices all the time, but he's really trying. And so instead of regarding him as someone who is not doing the right thing as a character and him having to learn how to parent William in a different way where they can find each other. We made a choice and it actually stems from something that Peter said to me early on because I kept banging on and on about what is it that Charles learns throughout Mm -hmm. this episode. And he said, it's not so much about learning, it's more about earning the right to father someone. You know, and and making yourself qualifying to step into, you know, those shoes and fill out that void that yeah. was left after Diana passed away. And so earning the right to father someone or to parent someone embedded in that is also, you know, standing up to the beatings over and over again and to just, you know, stay there, yeah. even though... You're yelled at and you're screamed at and you're... um, Prove that you want to be there. Yeah. And that was a real key to understand that it's not not necessarily about him evolving as a character, but it's about staying put. Look, I... I know I haven't got everything right. What parent does. I wish I had half your mother's emotional intelligence. And I'm sorry I haven't risen to the occasion in the way that you wanted me to, but the thing that people don't understand is that I've been grieving too. Really? Your grief? You're talking to me about your grief? Yes, of course. You think I'm not shattered by this? Your mother and I had just patched up our differences. We patched up your differences. What planet are you on? She still loved you. And only wanted to be in the south of France and not to be there when you threw a birthday party for the other one. As we've discovered on this episode of the Crown the Official podcast, Prince Philip has an important role. So, of course, we must hear from Jonathan Price. Jonathan, it's great to see you. And Thank you. And it's been wonderful to to watch you in this character again. Coming back to this final season, did you have a moment to kind of take a breath between seasons to think about, you know, where the character was in season five to where we find him in six? I did have a break. (laughs) I didn't spend much of it thinking about Philip. (laughs) In in some ways, you can't prepare in isolation to the scripts or anything. So... You wait for the scripts to come through. You know which way the storylines are going to go, hopefully in your favour. It's always a surprise. And I knew some of the things we would have to deal with, some of the events, the most significant of which was the death of Diana. Mm. I mean, two things happened. One, while we were filming in Scotland, we Christian, the director, had put together a, a short reel of Diana in Paris and everything that surrounded that. I found 
well, I wasn't alone, but I found myself incredibly moved, emotionally moved by watching the events on the screen. I was crying. The Adriano, the cinematographer who'd shot it, was crying. The director was in tears. It was it was very moving in itself as a piece of filmmaking and a drama. It took you back to, you know, waking up in the morning, turn the radio on and half hearing Diana, Paris, da-da-da-da-da-da. So there was that to deal with. And then moving on to um, the focus being on William and Harry and my relationship with William and how it reflected my relationship originally with Diana. There's a wonderful scene that's almost a real catalyst for the character where he, he's watching old footage yeah. of a young Philip with a very young Charles. Yeah. And it almost kind of ignites something in the character to to even just think about situations. Yeah, yeah. Just in terms of the character's thought process of why he chose to watch the footage and what you think he came out the other side. Yeah. I, I don't know why he chose to watch the footage. <laughs> there are things you can uh, think about and invent about a character. But the nearest uh, I could think about him looking at old photos and things is um, I do it a lot because of the ease with which you can keep things on your laptop. And now I've found, a, I always knew I had it, but a, a box of uh, photographs of my mother and my father and when they were young. And I've put them, you know, I've, I've taken a photograph of the photograph and they're on the laptop. It's like I, I do my own visual family tree. I look at them and I look at me and then I look at my daughter and my son and that sort of lineage. And uh, it's actually quite comforting. And I, I, you know, I wonder whether Philip found it, because uh, he was on a journey to find his lineage and his family, yeah. uh, whether he found it comforting to watch photos and uh, watch film and look at photos as I do you know yeah and it's it's that kind of from from within Peter's writing makes him kind of think about his relationship with Charles you know and and that there's a a beautiful scene with you and uh with Philip and William you and Ed where you've gone to to Eton to spend time with him as a granddad yeah yeah and that's kind of I almost took that you know it's kind of it's moved the royalty to one side this is a granddad and a grandson yeah yeah. Playing a game of chess and yeah. finding out if everybody's okay. Yeah, yeah. So simple. Yeah. And and so powerful. And working with Ed, how was that? It takes care of itself, really. You know, I'm a 75-year-old <laughs> man and he's a 24-year-old young man starting out in the business. And it's good because he's uh, he was always, always watching and always listening, which is what William had to do. Mm with Philip. No, I enjoyed it. I I enjoy working with young actors and I enjoy being able to tell them things and guide them a bit as Philip was trying to do with William. Because I've got, you know, 50, now one years of knowledge about the business. (laughs) A few words of wisdom. It's good to impart it. (laughs) But within that conversation, you get this idea that Philip's almost trying to kind of right some wrongs with, Mm. with regards to his relationship with Charles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he encourages him to be forgiving, which uh, you would hope Philip with Charles. They had a very difficult relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's uh, his raison d'etre for, the, for his relationship with William to, to guide him. 
and in some ways don't do as I do or did. And there's a, there is a sense of fun between them as well, which was enjoyable to do. So it's not all doom yeah. and gloom. And, you know, Philip did have a great sense of humour, which I discovered doing the series and discovered from talking to people who knew him and spent time with him to present that other side of him, the other side of the public face. And uh, to do it through and with William was was good. And it, to a lesser extent with Harry, I mean, you, you see the disapproving grandfather. That was reckless. And charge again like some deranged Viking. Oh, and again. Oh, shit. Language. Revenge? No. Not when you're in this state. One should never play chess with one's emotions. So, what's going on? Family. Oh, family. Was it what you imagined it would be? Did you have a preconception of what the experience was going to be? Yeah, I think I did. I watched... Uh, with my wife with Kate episode one season one thinking that would be it I'd just dip into it see what the fuss is about and um, got hooked on it so there'd always been a thought in my mind that I'd quite like to be a part of it oh wow so then when my agent Tor called me and said they'd uh, they want you to play Prince Philip I was like yeah seems (laughs) natural thing to happen okay and by then, of course, you, you know it is an extraordinary piece of television with incredible production values and it's really well made and everything and everyone's great. And I'd learned a bit from doing Game of Thrones because mm. I'd gone into that quite, not quite cynically, but I thought everyone else would be cynical when I turned up in Belfast for Series 5 mm-hmm. of something that I'd hardly watched. And I thought the crew and everyone would be like, oh, let's get this, you know, here we go again, next scene, move <laughs> on. But I was surprised by their dedication still after five series. And you find you're working on these series with people who are at the top of their game, as they say, and the best directors in that field. So my expectation was more of the same when I came to The Crown. I wasn't disappointed. You know, it... It's finished now. I won't, I won't miss acting, but that's the nature of the job. You do move on. Even at the end of the day of filming, you move on. You don't sit at home thinking, I'm Prince Philip. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe once in a while. <laughs> uh, but um, no, it's, it's been great. It's been great. What was the most surprising thing you learned about him that surprised you? His, well, that's what I did. It all came from the script and, in some respects, talking to people who knew him well. Anyone had met him and spent time with him. Nobody had a bad word to say about him, that he was interested and interesting and uh, had had a sense of warmth and a sense of humour and a very generous person. So that was good to be able to, to bring that to the character. And I didn't feel I had to do anything overlaying anything with that. You just had to be. And, um, you know, if you you live your life 
Well, you are interested and interesting. You're especially interested in other people. Mm. And I think he was, and I am. And I was able to bring that to, you know, there's nothing I like more than um, people watching <laughs> and daydreaming <laughs> while people watching. But, um, you know, there's been times in restaurants when uh, I could recount the whole of a conversation next to me. <laughs> and I'm more fascinated in that than maybe the person I'm with at the time. <laughs> he was a bit like that, I think. You know, fully aware of what was going on around him. For me, one of the most moving moments in this episode is where Philip drives William to Highgrove to reconcile with Charles. So let's hear from director Mayal Tukey once again to find out about her vision for this really heartfelt moment where Philip watches on as his son and grandson embrace. Philip has that kind of, he reads the situation so well. He's almost just the kind of observer, but almost wait and you can see that he's almost pensive. If he needs to, he's jumping in. For me, it's kind of a mission accomplished scene, you know, <laughs> that I think the beauty of what he's doing in the episode is that he's enabling William to walk the walk, basically. And so for me, there's a big difference between driving him to Highgrove, walking into the estate with him, sitting down with Charles, having the conversation, the three of them, and dropping him off and kind of helping him to walk across the courtyard, but not taking part in the conversation. Because if the ambition is to create like a sustainable relationship between Charles and William, it needs to be William himself driving yeah. the conversation that needs to happen. And so I find that that's the beauty of that scene is that he's kind of He's creating the framework within so that Charles and William can find each other, but he's not forcing them into the same room. Off you go. My father in his study. In the garden, sir. Thank you. So for me, it concludes the journey of Philip and Charles in a way and their relationship and the hardships they've had. You know, we all have our different truths when it comes to the way we regard the choices our parents has made. But finding each other through the next generation, I think can offer real solace because we you'll never agree on the truth anyway, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so finding each other in that can be very, very difficult, I think. And so there's a maturity to the ending of of episode I'm Edith Bowen. I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Peter Morgan, Jonathan Wilson, Dominic West, Maya Altuki, and Jonathan Price. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment 
in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time when I go behind the scenes of the sixth episode of season six, titled King Midas. As Prime Minister Tony Blair's popularity peaks, Elizabeth is concerned that the royal's popularity can no longer compete. In a bid to remain relevant, Elizabeth asks for advice from the man of the moment. Since you entered number 10, you've shown an uncanny ability to read the mood of the country better than anyone. And so I can't help but ask, what would you do to turn things round for us? if you were in charge? If I were in charge of the monarchy? If you were in my shoes? If I were king? Yes. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.